This morning's reading is taken from the book of Jonah, page 879, chapter 3. The heading is Jonah Goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. It's the word of the Lord. So uh, Dan is going to come and uh, give some reflections on that. Uh, are you happy if I pray for you? Sorry, yes. I didn't actually ask you that. Uh, Lord, thank you for Dan. Thank you for all that he does in caring and loving people across the world. We pray for your blessing on him this morning, that uh, we may be open to hear what he has to say through you. And we pray all that we would open our ears to listen and be moved in the way that you need us to be moved this morning. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really great to be with you this morning. It's a real genuine privilege to um, visit other churches around the country to see part of this huge, exciting body that we are part of. So thank you for the encouragement you've already given me. Um, Now, this morning, there's quite a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump in quite quickly. I need to explain why I'm here. Um, And then, like you said, um, we're looking at Jonah 3, and this is part of your series, Looking at Mission. Um, So there's a lot to cover this morning. Is it possible to get my laptop on the... um, Oh, not my laptop, my slides on the projector. And is the... Where's the clicker? Thank you very much. Um, So the first thing to do is um, 
introduce myself, really. So my name's Dan, and the reason I'm here is because I was conned. That's the truth. Um, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, well, 11 years ago now, um, my wife and I got married, or, or my fiancé and I got married, um, and we became husband and wife. And um, you know that every household kind of needs a planner, but only ever one, because if there's two planners, there's conflict. And Ruth, my wife, is the planner in my home. Um, and she said to me, let's go for a drink. And I thought, that's fine, I like drinks. And she said, because we need a five-year plan. And I broke out into a sweat, because I've never planned five days in advance, yes, alone five, five years. Anyway, the upshot of this drink was that in five years' time, um, we um, wanted to buy a house. And I thought, that's OK. I have no idea how we're going to afford a house, but I'm, I'm, I'm OK with that. Um, we wanted to go travelling for a year. I was not OK with that, because I've always thought home is you know, the best place. And then the, the third thing was children. And that terrified me, <laughs> genuinely. And then two weeks later, um, we went out for another drink. And by that point, I had kind of come on board with those things, because I realised I don't need to want children yet, because you know, maybe in five years' time I'll be ready. And the thought of travelling had actually started to... You know, the, the appeal had grown a bit. And we'd start to discuss places we could go and what we'd like to see. Um, and I was still keen to live under a, a roof. Um, but then at this drink, um, we were discussing what Ruth wanted to do as a career. And she said um, she was working for a, for a really good organisation, but she was quite distant from the work they were doing. She said, I really want to get some hands-on experience working with people. And she, she's really interested in food. So we researched it and we discovered this thing called a dietitian. And so that's, that's what she is now. But it's, it was going to take five years' study to get there. So our five-year plan lasted exactly two weeks. And then it was shoved out the door. And our new five-year plan was study. Um, and so our travel became three weeks. So this is, this is where I was first conned, because Ruth said, why don't we go travelling and see the world? And, and, I, and she kind of worked away at me, and I finally thought, yes, this would be great. And then just as I had kind of got on board, she introduced this new five-year plan, which was study, and our, and our travelling, seeing the world, became three weeks. Um, and then I was conned again, because a friend of mine, Tim Woodall, I don't know if any of you know Tim Woodall, Tim has, um, he did have connections here years ago, I thought, maybe. He's good friends with John Sanders, who worked here for a while. Um, anyway, Tim said, um, for reasons that are now lost to me, um, we ended up um, going to Uganda and Kenya. I think we really wanted to see parts of the world which was very different to our own experience. Um, but we went you know, on safari, and there's a great place in Kenya called Mombasa, which is beyond any description. The sands are white. It's, it's stunningly beautiful. Um, so we went to uh, those places. And Tim said, our friend, he said, oh, I lived in Nairobi for three and a half years. You should definitely go there, and I can introduce you to a friend, and you can stay with him. And we thought, that's great. And, he's, and then he went away and had a conversation. He came back to us. He said, it's all good. You can stay with my friend. Um, but you have to, he said, um, you can stay with him, kind of no fee, but he wants you to pay for a football league, a football tournament. That's a strange, that's a, <laughs> a strange exchange. And I probably should have pushed harder there, but I didn't. And anyway, so we, we arrived from Mombasa, so these beautiful sands, and we got into this taxi and we said, take us to wherever it was, the directions. And the roads became 
worse and worse, as, as did the buildings. And then, um, and we're going through, we're bumping along this road, and then the car stops, and the taxi driver says, um, he says, we're here. Um, they, they, I haven't got a great picture of it. Um, and I opened the door, and there was just a stream of sewage um, running outside the, 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 um, the taxi. Um, and I realised that we were staying in a slum. And I thought, when I catch up with Tim, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm livid. Anyway, so we, we ended up staying um, with George, who runs as a Matelli. George is this amazing guy. Um, so we, yeah, we, we have a nice evening with him. The next morning, um, we went to, to the football tournament that we, we, we um, were funding. And on the way, um, I was walking with George, and uh, there's all the smells and sounds of, of, of a slum, people living you know, in, in, in desperate conditions. But through it all, there came this smell, which it was like a jolt of electricity, just cut through everything. And, and it stopped me in my tracks. It was, it was the, you, do you know the brain um, struggles to remember pain? I don't know if you know that about the brain. Um, but I can remember this pain. It, kind of, it really burnt my sinuses. It genuinely caused this pain. And, and I said, George, what's that smell? And, um, and he said to me, he looked at me as if I was a little bit mad. Like, what smell? What are you smelling? And, um, and there's that, that strange thing where when you live in a, in a situation... So I, I live in London. Um, and you become so accustomed to your surroundings, you become oblivious to them. Um, Oh, this has died, hasn't it? I'll just shout. Um, so when you first fall in love, you can't take your eyes off that person, can you? But after you've been married, you're just like, oh, them. Like, you don't even realise they're in the room kind of thing. And it's a bit like um, in London, um, there are constant sirens, constant sirens. And so when we have friends who visit from, from nicer places, <laughs> they're like, what? All these sirens all the time. And I'm oblivious to them. I can't hear them because I hear them all day. Anyway, so I say to George, what's that smell? And he, he kind of looks at me as if I'm inventing things. And he, said, he says, what smell? And I said, the, the smell which is bur literally burning my sinuses. And then he looked around and he, he said, there were some people in the field, and he said, he said, oh, um, there's a sewage pipe that runs from Nairobi through this community to the river, the river where people clean clothes and wash. They clean clothes for a living. But the sewage pipe dumps all this stuff in the, the river, and he said, oh, they dig it up, and they scrape out the human excrement, and that's what they use as fertiliser because they can't afford it. So that's what they grow their food in. And that was one of those experiences that kind of, it's just like a punch to your gut. And it was just like, I need a moment. And George, he kind of tells me, and then he's like, right, carry on. And I, I'm just kind of reeling from this. Like, how, how do we reconcile this? How do we, I just, I couldn't make sense of it. And, and I once, I had a hundred questions. Why on earth are we playing football if this is the reality? Um, so we, anyway, we went to the field where we were playing football, and what I saw was that football brought the community together. And through football, this football tournament, um, George was able to... I mean, there were hundreds of kids who had been practising for, for ages, and all summer they'd been waiting for this single tournament. And then through it, um, George and his team 
um, used it as an opportunity to nurture them, to encourage them, to bring them into other programs he was running. And I realised it was a way of connecting people um, and the basis of doing so much more, but it was also a way of sharing hope. Um, anyway, so, so I'll, I'll try and hurry and waste all my time telling you a story. But um, I, I came home and, uh, and I was, I think I was probably like, depressed for quite a few months because how do you reconcile that experience with what we have? And I remember um, being sat in a coffee shop and, and um, you kind of go up to the counter and they say, what do you want? And then you look at the, all the different coffees and you're like, oh, I don't know. And, and now it's like, what kind of milk do you want? Like, you have to dither on that. Do I want oat or almond or soya or rice or coconut or semi-full? Like, there's just endless options. And do I want a latte or a mocha or an Americano or, you know, all these options. And I'm paralysed by my choice. I have so many options available to me, and it's, I have, you know, extraordinary opportunities in London. We have, and here also, we, have, we, lived, we live such privileged lives. And how do we reconcile this moment that we're in now, the comfort that we have, with knowing that there are people who are forced to grow their food in someone else's excrement? It's, it, it doesn't compute, it kind of just frazzled me. And I, and I thought for so long, how can I support this community? And I realised, I, I was actually, I do lots of marketing work, and I was working for a charity at the time, and I was writing things about water. I was in charge of writing all the, the copy about water, and so I would say, oh, if we can, get, there's 880, at the time I was doing it, there was 80, 884 million people without clean water. And the spill was, if we can provide them with clean water, then they, can, they won't get sick, they can go to school, they'll get great jobs, and hey presto, the world's problems are solved. But then I went to this community in Kenya, Kitwamba, and I realised that's a lie. Because you give someone clean water, first of all, they don't know the value of it, which is tragic, but it's true. Um, you give them clean water, they might be well, but there's no school for them to go to. And they might go to school, but there are no jobs. So how do you, it's paralysing that realisation that the, the poverty that these people are forced to live in is the coalescence of so many broken and absent systems. So, um, so in the end, um, the, the resolve was, I was in a meeting and the, it, was, um, a, it was a lecture about the end of poverty. It was kind of, and you kind of think this is just an, an arrogant, silly thing to talk about, the end of poverty, <coughs> and we'll fix that. But I re and then... And I kind of disengaged with the conversation. And I've been reading a few books about, about trying to understand things better. And I realised that it was a stupid question. And a better question would be, can you end the poverty of education? Or can you end the poverty of water? Or can you end the poverty of lack of healthcare? And if you take any one of those things... So I, I know lo lots of my friends are teachers. And I thought, I can't solve the problems in Kitwamba at all. But do I know enough people who could transform the, the school in Gitwamba? And I thought, yeah, 100% absolutely I do. And do I know people who can transform the water poverty and the material poverty and the financial poverty? Do I know people who could bring enterprise to that community? And I realised, yes, I do. And, it's, and I think it's a, a great picture of the church 
because we all play different roles, don't we? We all bring different strengths and experiences. And when we do that together, we can transform communities. So that's, um, that's a rather long and rambling way to explain um, how, I, how I resolve, right, I'm committed to this. I'm going to serve this community. So I set up People, um, which is a charity in the, um, in the UK, and rather than being causal, so rather than saying we are passionate about water or we're passionate about education, we, we try to partner with, all, with communities and work, find partners in that community, like as Matelli, and we empower them to, to, to um, identify the barriers to development and also the opportunities for development. So we work with the whole community to, to empower them and to lift the community out of poverty. Anyway, what's this got to do with, um, <laughs> how's this informed by, by our reading of scripture and, um, and also Jonah 3? Um, so before I get onto Jonah 3, I want to just um, tell you where, it, where scripture really enforces my sense of mission. And it, um, I think the best way, the be where it's it's most perfectly articulated is in Luke 10 when Jesus is asked, um, how do you understand the law? Um, and for the, if you don't know, um, the law was mega confusing. Uh, it, the law that he was asked about, Jesus was asked about, was mega confusing. We read that and we think, um, because the, the expert in the law says, you know, what's the most important law to keep? And we think he's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? Because they're the, they're the big ones. But for a rabbi or for a Jew, there was a, there was a, lot, of, there was a lot of law. So first of all, you have the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. So they have that, and they know that. Then there's the other bits of the Old Testament, which is, is kind of their story. And then they have the Talmud. You might have heard that word. The Talmud is the oral tradition. Um, so it wasn't written down, but it was, it was passed on orally. Every rabbi knew that. And then you had other things. You had the Mishnah which was conversations about the, the Talmud. And then you had um, the, uh, the, it's gone. You had the Gemara, which was conversations about Mishnah, about the, the Talmud. But the Torah, you had, um, oh, it's, the word's gone. There was another, there were conversations about the, the Torah. Uh, Midrash, Midrash were conversations about um, the Torah. Um, interestingly, Midrash is sometimes, um, translated as yoke. So when, when Jesus says, my yoke is light, he means my midrash, the way I understand the law, my, my interpretation of it all, that's light. So he's saying, my understanding of life, that's what, that's what yoke means. Anyway, um, going back to Luke 10. So, so they say to Jesus, How, what's the most important law? And Jesus says, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself which is interesting because those aren't laws. <laughs> He's just kind of, that's his interpretation of all the law. He's saying, this is the summation of it all. And that is, that's where I come back to. It's this realisation that we must love our neighbour. That's the most important thing. Um, and in a minute, I'll, um, I'll bring it back to that. Um, I'm struggling with this clicker. Um, because you'll see that um, the story that Jesus tells after that is actually related to Jonah 3. Um, anyway, so Jonah, um, we're going to <laughs> try to whiz through this bit because um, I, I know I've been talking far too long already. Um, but Jonah, um, Jonah, uh, the way I think we need to understand Jonah is 
um, it's satire. So you know that the Bible is full of lots of different types of writing. Um, so psalms are a good example. We know that psalms are, um, are songs. Um, we know that there's lots of law. We know that there's history. We know that there's poetry. But in order to take scripture really seriously, we have to understand its genre. Um, because, our, because otherwise we think the truth of it is in its historicity or, liter or uh, how literally we can take it. But the, tr the, great, the most profound truths that we live by, they're not, they're not literal, are they? If I ask you about the greatest truth you live by, it won't be pure math. It'll be that you are loved and it'll be about who you love and the way that we articulate that. Um, it comes through words, but we use metaphors and examples. So the other day I was playing with my son, Ruben. We were playing Lego. And did you get um, Storm Hannah here? Elizabeth. So I got Storm Hannah. And I was playing with Ruben, and we're playing Lego. And all of a sudden, there's this thunderous downpour of rain. It was, it was really impressive. And, and I said to I don't always speak like this, but I said to Ruben, cool, it's raining cats and dogs. And I don't speak like that often, but I, for some reason I said to Ruben, it's raining cats and dogs. And he looked up at me, kind of with a sad look on his face, like, I, I've suspected this for a while, but it's, it's true, my dad's mad. And, um, and he looked at me really confused. And then he heard the rain, and he looked over to the, the, the doors, and he ran over, and he was looking out. And, um, and he was there at the door for a while, looking at all this rain. And then after a while, he turned to me and he said, no, Daddy, it's just water rain. <laughs> and, like, okay. and, then, and then he did this thing. He, he said, no, it's, not, it's just water rain. And then he went, <gasps> and he looked out the door again. And he went, I might have just seen a cat. <laughs> because he thought that the expression, it's raining cats and dogs, was literal. But in tr the, the truth is behind that, isn't it? So, so Jonah, I think, is is um, satire, and the reason why, there's a few reasons why um, we can be sure that it's satire, um, because all the way through, there's things that are quite ridiculous. So we've just heard that, that, um, that it was three days' walk across. Not true. It was, at its grandest, at its biggest, it was three days. I mean, three miles. So you can do that in, you know, you can do that in a couple of hours. Um, so, it, but the, the idea they're painting was it was a huge, intimidating city. That's, that's what the author's um, guessing at. Then there's the whole giant fish thing. And lots of people say, is it true that you can be eaten by a giant fish and last in the, the stomach for three days? Clearly not. But, but then another question would be, could God orchestrate that? And obviously the answer would be yes, but then we're stuck in this trap. Why is it a giant fish? Um, this is my theory. Because Nineveh, the symbol of Nineveh, was a fish. So, if um, I said to you, God told me to go to Russia um, and say, oi, you've got to stop doing that stuff with Facebook, whatever it is you're doing, and I thought, crikey, I can't go to Russia and tell them to stop manipulating Facebook, and then a giant bear came and ate me, and then whilst I was in the bear, I kind of prayed and thought, oh, I should actually go and um, you know, tell them. Then you realise, ah, the bear represents Russia, doesn't it? And it's almost a way of saying, in the same way that God commands the bear or God commands the fish, God commands the Ninevites. The Ninevites are God's people. In the same way that the fish belongs to God, the fish represents Nineveh, so all of Nineveh. All of these people are God's people. So that's um, the Sasa there. And then there's the 120,000 people. This comes in chapter 4. Um, 
And that number looks suspicious, not suspicious, but familiar, 120,000. So there's, so there's lots of sim symbolism across scripture, which I love this stuff. I'm a nerd. I could bore you silly with it. Um, but two numbers to, to be aware of are three, which is God's number, um, within ancient kind of Mesopotamian, the ancient Near East, that number was used regularly to represent God. And four, it was used to represent all of creation and earth. So when you add them together, you get seven. Oh, seven's a very significant number. And when you multiply them, you get 12. Um, so 12, the, these are deeply symbolic numbers. Um, so 12, uh, 120,000, the idea is it's like the 12 tribes of Israel. It's like Israel, just big. So, so in many ways, Nineveh maybe even represents um, uh, Israel, in, uh, which we'll come back to. And then there's, there's Jonah. Um, so Jonah, his name means peace, but if he's anything but peaceful because he's just like, he's a coward and, and he's pious, isn't he? He, he? he cares about the law and he hates that the Ninevites break the law and they're bad people and he wants God to kind of screw him over. So, so Jonah, his name means peace or dove, he's anything but peaceful. Um, and then, um, and then we've just read about every man and every animal. So if you, if you know Israelite, Israel's story, you know that um, Moses can't crack it. You know that Aaron can't crack it. Like these are the great patriarchs of, of Israel, of, of, of the Jews, and they can't, they can't get it right. And so now we're reading, oh yeah, some bloke smelling of fish vomit turns up and says, oh, you should listen to me. Like, you're not going to listen to that guy, but all, like, straight away, every person, the king, all the animals, obey Yahweh, who they, they don't know. It's like, this isn't going to happen. Um, and then lastly, did they change? This is a, a, an important question. Did the Ninevites change? Did Assyria change their ways? Well, here is a timeline. So Jonah, um, we know that Jonah lived, this is in Kings, we know that he lived in the 8th century B.C., um, so between 786 and 746 BC. Um, shortly after, Assyria conquered Israel. Um, so they, they conquered the northern tribes. Um, and then, shortly after that, um, Alexander the Great came along and squashed them. So the Battle of Nineveh, so the Persians came in and took over um, the Assyrian Empire. Um, but then here's the interesting thing, because, um, because of influences in the book of Jonah, um, we can kind of figure out when it might have been written. And Jonah, the version that we have, was written between five and the 5th and 4th century BC. So the book was written after the Assyrians didn't change their way, and after the Assyrians destroyed, um, took over Israel which really changes how we read it. it because, because everyone knows, everyone who's reading this book knows the Ninevites didn't change. The Ninevites came in and squashed us, and then the Persians came in and squashed them. And so but I think that um, the story that... Um, I think what this story is about is about the original call to the Israelites, which was, you should be a blessing to every nation. It's about understanding who we are. So Jonah, his name means peace. You are to be a peaceful envoy. You are to go and share God's love. This is who you are to be. You need to, you need to face whatever tyranny, whatever great power 
this is who you should be. And, it, and all the way through, Jonah stumbles and, he, and he, he, he just goes back to his plant and he, I'm pious and I've got it right. But the challenge is you are called to be a blessing to other people. And in the same way that it didn't work out with, um, with the Assyrians, the, the challenge is be true to who you are. Confront whatever it is. Remember our identity. It's not about being a great military power. It's about, it's about strained, staying true to, to what God has called us to. And then um, um, just going back to, to that, um, Luke 10, <coughs> that Luke 10 passage, because after he, he explains um, the summation of the law, if you, you can read all the law you want, but it basically, this is Jesus speaking, he says, basically it means love God and love your neighbour as yourself. So as yourself presupposes that we understand that we should love ourselves because our identity is in God, something we're not very good at believing or, or staying true to today. But um, within Judaism, there was an understanding that we are loved by God. And in the same way that God loves you, you should love yourself and you should love the neighbour. And then the, the expert in the law says, but who's my neighbour? And then he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And you, you're probably well aware of that story. But what you might not know is that Um, The Samaritans are hated by the Jews because of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians come in, they take over the northern tribes, and the Samaritans are Jews who kind of flee up north, but they hold true to the Jewish tradition. Okay, so they so they all they believe the same thing. So they go up north and they continue with their traditions. And then there's the the dispersed people and the people who who go down further south into Judah. Um, and they practice their things, and they, their traditions um, over the centuries grow apart. They have different, they, they tell slightly different stories. And if you want to get really nerdy, you can look at the Old Testament and, and read about how um, these two great stories and traditions were mashed back together. So some, sometimes in the Old Testament, there's these stories that, if, so, so the flood narrative is a good example of, if you read it, it's like, why are there the kind of two or three accounts here? And it's because it's these bringing together these different traditions, Israel and Judah, and it's smashing them back together. But anyway, so, so when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, um, he tells of the story of a guy who, um, uh, you know there's the priest and the, the, Levi who, the Levites who, um, who cross over the road. And we're thinking kind of nice wide pedestrian road, a bit like ours. Like, I'll just hop over to the other side of the pavement. But that's not how roads worked back in the day, is it? They were probably you know, n- not particularly wide. So they basically stepped over this, this poor person. And for good reasons. They were pious people. The priest can't touch someone who he thinks is dead because then he can't, he can't work in the temple. And the Levites, um, the Levites service the temple. So they want to be clean. They're trying to keep God's law. God's law says don't touch a dirty person, someone who might be ill or, or, or dying or dead. Don't do it. So they're, they're good. They're keeping the law. But then along comes this Samaritan and you know, all of the, the southerners are thinking those flipping Samaritans, they think they've got all the answers, but they, they haven't, we stay true. And there's this big kind of argument about who understands the law better. And the Samaritan realize that, that, realizes that the law is about compassion and it's about love. And he bends down and he serves this person. And so, so, so the hero of the story is a heretic, someone who, who the Jews know have got it all wrong. And yet Jesus says, Who's got it right? Who's got it right? And, and if you can read it in Luke 10, um, 
the expert in the law can't even, he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, well, I suppose the guy who stops. It's like, yes. And that, I think, is, is the, the challenge of Jonah 3, or the whole book of Jonah. I think it's the challenge of the whole of Scripture, really. But it's also the call of Jesus. It's a call to remain true to this story that, that starts in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham and says, you should be a blessing to every nation. And it's, it carries on. This is the message of Jonah. This is Jonah's struggle to take this message to the, the scariest people on earth, the Assyrians. And it's the message that Jesus picks up again. He says, you must tell all people that I, Yahweh, am for them. That's the message of, of, of Jonah. And so um, just landing on back um, on the work in Kenya, um, that's what compels me to, to work because... I see in all of these young people's faces and the people in Kenya, in Gitoamba, these people are God's people. And they're, they're, they're not as bad as the people of Nineveh. They're not that scary. They have, like every community, there are people with problems. But whether they believe it or not, I truly believe that these are God's people. And I believe that they deserve every opportunity to pursue the the fullness of life and their unique gifts that God has given them. And that's why, that's why I'm committed to serving them. And so, as a little plug, <laughs> this, this is entirely up to you because um, Camborne Church supports uh, the work of Uzmatelli really generously. Um, and that's great. One of the, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm working with George, who is the director of Uzmatelli with, is um, what I really want to do is not just do... So, so we run a scholarship program, which is secondary school, and we're starting to work alongside the primary school a lot more. But I don't just want to do primary school and secondary school. I think what we've got to do is, is serve people throughout their lives. So the moment that your mother is pregnant with you, we want to be working to ensure that she has great health care and understanding about nutrition, because their nutritional knowledge is bad. I could tell you some stories, but it's, it's bad. But we want to work with pregnant women. We want to work with early, the, the early years development in primary school and secondary school. And then we're developing um, kind of an, uh, a graduate program, essentially, to help people into employment. But in a community where there are few opportunities, we want to ensure that they have every opportunity. Um, and so to try and fund that, um, I've launched a campaign called Coffee Free Friday. And what that is, is um, uh, it co so it costs um, to send someone through school with lots of costs built in. So it's not just their, their um, tuition, but this is developing a feeding program. This is um, training teachers. This is paying teachers. Um, it's doing healthcare and a library. Um, it costs £10 a month, which is £2.50 a week, which is a coffee. So if you donate a co one coffee a week, and people buy me coffee all the time. I drink more coffee than I should. I come, I'm jittery by the end of most days. But I go to these meetings and you know, people just, I say, oh, I've had five coffees today. They go, oh, I'll have another one. We don't think twice about a coffee. But a coffee is all it takes to help someone through school um, and change their lives. So, so we've got this campaign. So there's some coffee cups over there. And the campaign is, if you sign up, to donate £2.50 or a coffee a week, then, um, then we give you a free, reusable, um, uh, uh, recyclable, eco-friendly, very trendy 
um, coffee cup um, that you can keep. So you, so you sign up, you donate um, yeah, £2.50 a week, a coffee a week, and you get given a coffee cup to kind of champion and say thank you. So if you want to support um, this work in this community, I know that as a church you already do, but if you want to um, personally do that, um, then yeah, come and chat to me afterwards. Um, but I think that's a good place to land. I know that. I'm sorry. Should I pray or do you? You're very welcome to, yes, please do. Okay. Um, Lord, we thank you for um, all of the extraordinary stories that are collected in our Bibles. We thank you that they have been passed down to us and that we can read and learn so much from them. I pray that, first of all, you would always keep us humble, that we would come to your word with a sense of awe and um, readiness to learn and to be challenged. But, but more than that, we pray that our study of your word and, the, and the, the things that I've shared this morning would only transform us to be more gracious, to be more loving, and as you summarised it, to be people who love you and who love our neighbours as we love ourselves. So may that be what we take. May that be our challenge this morning. Amen.